You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Good morning, Park Church. If you'll go ahead and take your seats, we'll move forward with the reading of God's Word. Um, The reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. Um, There's a Pewback Bible in front of you, so you can go ahead and use that if you don't have one with you today. If you don't own a Bible at all, please feel free to take that one home with you as a gift. Um, As Joel mentioned, we're doing things a little bit differently this morning. I have my grandfather's Bible here in my hand, um, and it's written in Armenian. Um, I love reading God's Word from my native tongue for many reasons, but the main one is it serves as a reminder to me that our God is not just the God of English-speaking people. He's not just the God of Western civilizations, but He is a global God. He's concerned for all people, and I think the diversity we see in His creation is a testament to the fact that He has no limits um, in what He can do for His kingdom and for the people who are a part of it. So, With that, um, I'm going to read a first portion here in Armenian, and then I'll go back and read the whole thing in English. So I dare you to try to follow along. Yev Hisus Ange Yelelov, Dirosi Usidoni Gormere Kanats, Yevaha Kananatsi Ginmagar, Ein Sahman Neren, Gararager Anor Ugeser, Vororme Inzider, Vorti Tafti. Achigas Tevet Sasti Gacharvi, Yevink Panav Badashan Chidavanor, Uir Ashagetner Modenalov, Garachain Iren Ugesein, Artsage Adiga, Vasanzi Mer Yedeven Gararage, Yevink Badashan Devav Uesav, Yes Urishima Chirgeveta, Pites Miain Israeli Dana, Gorsevats Vocharnerun. Yevaniga Yegav Yergerbakutun Gener Anor Ugeser, Der Oknainzi. Anal Badashan Devav Uesav Aregche Derot Hatze Arnel Ushunerunzekel. Yevaniga Asav Ayoder Vasenzi Shunernal Irens Deroch Seranen Ingads Peshankner Engegera Gravin. Ein Aden Hisus Badashan Devav Uesav Ovgin Kuhavat Gatmeze. Kuzazit bes lakezi, yev nuin jamanag anor achchige pejeshkvetsav. And now in English. <laughs> and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, Great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the word of the Lord. 
Be to God. Can we give Talene a hand and thank her for... I, uh, I love that. Thank you so much. And also just your grandfather's Bible is special too. Think about the God of the nations and the God of generations. And, uh, and that's my hope for grandchildren is that they'd be following Jesus. And my hope for all of us, whether you're a grandchild or great-grandchild of a first-generation Christ follower, or maybe you are a first-generation Christ follower, what would it look like to continue to see this gospel spread, not just from people group to people group, but from generation to generation. So love that. Thank you, Talene, uh, for leading us in that. Uh, a couple things before we get into the passage. Uh, we all woke up this morning to a blanket of snow uh, around our city, uh, which if, if you're like me, I like that. It's fun. Nice. Uh, glad you made it safely. We also woke up uh, this morning to a blanket of fire extinguisher dust all over our whole building. Uh, somebody thought it'd be pretty clever and fun to climb through a window, take a fire extinguisher, and blow it all over our whole building. And so that happened this morning. I got a text from Joel Olympic uh, around 6 a.m. He come into the building and he's like, hey, you know, there's powder everywhere. And he was, you know, doing a whole Sherlock Holmes bit, trying to figure out what was going on. And, uh, and so uh, we, it was literally all over the pews, all over the floor, in the carpet, all over the stage, down the hallways, on the chairs, in park kids, everywhere, and all the ledges. And then so we uh, first, you know, hopped on the cameras and figured out, you know, which one of you did this? You know, <laughs> which one of you did this? And, uh, and we couldn't find out because the culprit wore a sheet over their head the whole time, which is clever. Um, it's clever. So, you know, to that person, well done, touche, uh, nicely played. Uh, but we called a bunch of people and, uh, and just saw, you know, a couple dozen people come and just vacuum and dust and clean and mop and clean and mop and vacuum and dust again and then clean and mop again over and over. And just a bunch of people scattered around and just thought, this is family. Uh, we're the people of God, we're family, things like this happen in the world, and we get to roll up our sleeves and, and lean into it together. And so for those that did come and help clean, uh, thank you. Uh, for those of you that made it here, glad you're here today. If you notice residual dust around or on your clothes, uh, apologies, we tried our best. Um, we tried our best. Uh, the 9 a.m. swept it up with their bodies before you got here. So uh, <laughs> you're all fine. You're all fine. Another, another cleaning. Uh, we are today in a, in a passage uh, that is, on the surface, tricky. It's tricky. Um, there are things that Jesus does in this passage, and there are things that he says in this passage that I think are a little bit uh, hard for us to get our minds around. They don't sound very Jesus-y. Uh, and so we have some work to do to try to understand that. But I have this uh, conviction that comes from both my experience, but also from passages like Second Timothy chapter 3, that this passage is really valuable for us. Uh, here's what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That all of scripture is valuable. It's like a treasure. It has this Profitability. It has something to do. God wants to change us, teach us, correct us, challenge us, grow us. And all of Scripture, the whole book from the beginning to the end is valuable. But there are places, admittedly, that because of cultural distance and some of the things that are going on that are different to kind of the way we think about things or different than what we might expect, it takes a little bit of work. And so this morning, this passage takes a little bit of work. So I want you to think of it as a bit of a buried treasure. But in my experience, when I get to passages that are a little more confusing, a little harder, a little less palatable to my cultural sensibilities, the kind of stuff I'm like, ooh, this isn't going to be fun to preach. The more I stay in it and meditate on it and chew on it, the more I find really beautiful, transformative things that we all need. And I think God has some really uh, transformative stuff for us here today from Matthew 15. And so would you join me as we pray and ask God to open our eyes to see the beauty of his kingdom, his purposes, and what he's called us to as his followers in this world. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we uh, are grateful for your faithful love to us. Um, even as the snow falls from heaven. And I think about the poem from Isaiah the prophet and this snow that comes down. We don't know all about where it's come from, but it, it waters the earth and offers this blanket of purity, but also bringing moisture to this land, giving seed to the sower and bread to the hungry. 
we look to that reality as the way you nourish the wor- world, but also the way you nourish the world through your word. So shall it be with the word that goes out from my mouth. It won't return empty, but it will accomplish the purposes for which you sent it. And so I pray for that this morning, uh, that your word would accomplish something among us today. That it would awaken us to your beauty, your glory, your love, your power, your grace, your mercy, and your kingdom, the beauty of your kingdom, and that you would awaken within us, just like we sang, awake my soul and sing of him who died for me. Inhale him as thy matchless king through all eternity. That's what we want to be as a people that have our souls awakened to who you are in the beauty of your kingdom. So open our eyes today and fill us with a passion for Christ and his kingdom. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, We're just going to dive right in. Sound good? Sounds good. We got work to do. So um, Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. I'm going to give a teeny bit of context. The the previous passage, if you remember, Jesus had fed 5,000 people through a miracle of multiplying bread and fish through his disciples to the masses. They were fed, they were satisfied, 12 baskets were taken up, and uh, and it was really beautiful. The fame of Jesus is spreading, his glory is spreading, news about his kingdom and about the power and about his teaching is spreading, but that news had made its way to Jerusalem. Jesus is doing most of his ministry a couple days travel north of Jerusalem in a region called Galilee. But the news had made it to Jerusalem and the religious leaders in Jerusalem heard that this potentially messianic figure, when we say messianic, we mean an anointed one that the Hebrew people were expecting to come to restore their nation to its promised and kind of prophesied position of glory and power. This potentially messianic figure was around Galilee, but he was not following all the traditions of the elders. He wasn't following their customs. He didn't come up through their ranks. He was actually undermining and teaching in ways that challenged the Jewish religious establishment. And that was offensive to the Hebrew leaders. And so they kind of pulled together a constituency, a delegation. They sent these religious elite leaders from Jerusalem up to Galilee to kind of investigate what's going on. So he asked, they asked Jesus a question about why his disciples didn't follow these cleansing rituals. And if you remember, uh, Jesus wasn't like apologetic, like, I'm so sorry, we'll try to do better. Uh, He called them hypocrites. Uh, He told them that even though they were kind of outwardly obeying all these traditions, their hearts were far from God. And he taught all of his disciples and all of the crowd that God's kind of vision for the world isn't that humanity would try harder and do more, but that we'd embrace the reality that our hearts are broken down to the very core. And we are in desperate need for a savior to forgive us, to cleanse us, to wash us, and to change us. And that's who Jesus came to be. Now that was offensive to the Jewish leaders. Jesus didn't apologize. He didn't try to soften it. He let it be. But what you'll find from this point forward in the story of Jesus' life and ministry is Jesus begins now to kind of pull back from public ministry to focus most specifically, there's, there's still more confrontation, but mostly he's going to focus on equipping his 12 disciples and his closest group of followers for what is to come, which is heading towards this ultimate conflict that will be in Jerusalem, which the religious leaders will eventually oppose him. They will arrest him. They will falsely accuse him. They'll create this kangaroo court where they wrongfully condemn him to death. They hand him over to the Romans who will execute him. That's where the story's headed. Most of the story from here until that point is Jesus withdrawing from public ministry to focus on preparing his disciples for what's to come and for the ministry he's going to give them on the other side of the resurrection. They don't understand all of that, but that's what's going to happen. And so Jesus, instead of kind of leaning into the conflict in chapter 15, verse 21, he actually retreats north. He goes further away, not just further away from Jerusalem, but he goes outside the boundaries of Israel. He's going into Gentile territory, not primarily to be on mission there, but primarily to retreat from the attention and from the conflict to give focused attention to his 12 disciples. So that's where we're at, chapter 15, verse 21. Read with me. And Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. That's again, north, Gentile territory, Tyre and Sidon. He's away from the land of Israel. He's retreating. He's moving away from those people. It says, and behold... A Canaanite woman 
from that region came out and was crying. And the word there is perpetually crying, continually crying, crying again and again and again. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Uh, This Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and is just following him around, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me. Please help me. Please help me, Lord. Son of David, help me. Please help me, my daughter. She's she's possessed by a demon. I've tried to deliver her. I've tried to rescue her. I've done everything I can. I've, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And he's asking and she's asking and she's pleading and she's pleading. And Jesus then turned to her and said, your daughter is made well. She's clean. She's delivered. Go. No. Look at what it says. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. That doesn't feel like Jesus. She's crying out again and again and again, pleading again and again and again from a place of deep desperation. For the parents in the room, you, you know what it's like to watch your children suffer. Maybe they're sick. Maybe some, they, they broke a bone. They're not well. They're struggling emotionally. They've made bad decisions, whatever it might be. And you're watching them suffer, and you want, to, you want to fix it. You want to make them well. And there's a kind of suffering in watching your children suffer that's hard to express. For almost any parent in the, in the room, the parental instinct is, is so much, I would rather suffer 10 times over than watch my kids suffer. And that's what this woman is feeling. She is desperate for her daughter. She's pleading. She has, without question, done the parent thing, the motherly thing. She's tried everything she can probably think of to help her daughter experience deliverance from this demonic power. And now she comes up to this Jesus who, for whatever reason, has made his way into her region. And she's pleading with him perpetually, continually to heal. And it's the kind of situation that we're we're used to Jesus responding, maybe some questions, maybe some thoughts, but eventually healing, the sort of healing that he's done over and over that we've grown really kind of accustomed to reading about as we've worked through the Gospel of Matthew, and he doesn't. Why? Why? Uh, Well, we're going to have to look and see what happens. Look, verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him. His disciples begged him, please, she's desperate, heal her, please. No, it's not what they begged him. They begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. Get her out of here. She's like, nonstop, send her away. I'm like, this doesn't feel like Christianity, not, not the Christianity that we've come to, to learn and to expect. What is going on? What is going on? Jesus ignores her. The disciples start begging him to send her away because she's crying and pleading again and again. Verse 24, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What is happening? What's happening? Uh, Jesus is going to explain the reason why he's not jumping out and healing this woman's daughter, delivering her right away. In his own words, is that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, To understand what's happening in this passage, uh, we kind of have to get our mind around the narrative. The Bible's not like a dictionary or an encyclopedia with a bunch of random entries. It's an unfolding narrative, an unfolding drama through which God is explaining his mission as the creator of the world and the universe to repair and restore his kingdom and to bring heaven and earth together the way he's designed. And that's what the biblical story is about. It's about God's kingdom restoration project. And we're at a point in the story. And to understand Jesus' actions and attitude and decision at this point and what he's saying, we have to understand a little bit that's come before and where the story's headed. So track with me. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates it with these kingly decrees as let there be, let there be, let there be, and there was, and there was, and there was, and this world is created, and there's flourishing and abundance, and he creates a garden in the middle of the world, and he plants humanity there to be his representatives, 
to bear his image, to show his glory, to be a reflection of what he's like and the way we operate with one another, the way we love one another, serve one another, the way we show kindness and grace and generosity, the way we show servant-hearted love, the way we honor our differences and the differences that God has created within us and the way we use our skills and our hands and our wisdom and our idea and our creativity to bring flourishing to the world and to serve other people. It's what the kingdom was made to be. It's a kingdom that you long for, where there's justice and righteousness and peace. There's meaningful work and there's pleasing rest and there's these rhythms of love and generosity where you're receiving from the generosity of others and you're giving freely to care for other people. This is the world that it was made to be. It's the kingdom of God. It's what you're designed for. Every human being has embedded within you a longing for this kingdom. But in the beginning, those first humans rejected the reign of God at the temptation of an evil serpent, an evil spiritual being that deceived them to say, instead of following God's wisdom for joy and for life and for flourishing, you're going to chase after it in your own way. So you're going to chase after joy. You're going to still chase after flourishing life. You're going to still chase after kind of abundance and all the things you long for, but you're going to do it your own way. And so this satanic figure tempts humanity to turn away from the reign of God, and Adam and Eve buy into the lie, and they seek their own joy, their own life, their own abundance, their own way. And from that point forward, all of us have done the same thing. We've done the same thing. And in that space of trying to build our own sense of life, our own sense of identity, trying to gain love, gain pleasure, gain experiences, gain security in our own resources with our own wisdom and our own ingenuity, in that rebellion against God, there's a brokenness and there's a separation from God that the human race experiences. And in that position, humanity continues to multiply and to fill the earth, but not with these kind of kind of communities that are reflecting God's glory, but communities that are misrepresenting God's glory in so many corrupted ways. And so that kind of movement spreads, and we get to a place like Genesis 11, where now it's multiple nations have been created, and God has scattered humanity across the face of the earth. And there are all these nations that are using their ingenuity and their creativity and all the gifts that God has given us to try to make our own way to build something akin to the Garden of Eden, but without the God. Something that feels like, smells like, tastes like, and has the kind of resemblance of the kingdom of God, but without the king. We want pleasure. We want security. We want rest. We want love. We want acceptance. We want experiences. We just want it our own way. And so we all turn away. In the biblical terminology, we all sin. We, we turn away. We find our own path. And into that space, God has made a promise that he will redeem and restore everything that's been broken by human sin. But he's going to do it through a particular people group. And so he calls this man named Abram, whose name is changed to Abraham. Abraham has a son eventually. Crazy story. Read about it in Genesis. Named Isaac. Isaac has a couple sons. Crazy story. Read about it in Genesis. Named Jacob and Esau. Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 children. And the kingdom of God is going to be restored in and through the 12 children of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the promise that God is going to pour out his blessing, his presence, his spirit, his wisdom, his life, his redeeming love on a particular nation, the nation of Israel. And through that nation, eventually it's going to flood back out to all the nations. Eventually all nations, all humanity will be restored, but it will happen in and through this particular nation, the nation of Israel. And so the nation of Israel... Hearing this mission, receiving God's presence and God's redeeming love, turn from him again. Just like Adam and Eve had in the beginning, they turn from him again. And there's brokenness. And so God promises that eventually one particular person, a son of David, an offspring of the greatest king in Israel's history is going to come. And he will restore Israel. He will restore Israel. He will redeem Israel. He will rescue Israel from bondage. He will restore them. He will restore them to their God, Yahweh himself. And Israel will be restored as this kingdom. And then all the prophets would prophesy. And then Israel become a blessing to the nations. And then the nations will see Israel and think their God must be the one true God. And the nations will flock to Israel. They will flock to Jerusalem. They will flock to Zion. All the nations will say the God of Israel is the one true God and the glory will make its way back out. Redeeming love will make its way back out to the nations. That's the, that's the flow from humanity, its brokenness, to this choosing of Israel, through Israel to a selection of an offspring, a son of David, through that son of David, back out to Israel and from Israel back out to the nations. 
At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he will commission his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Take it to Ukraine. Take it to Russia. Take it to the Americas. Take it to the, the southern kind of like plains of Africa. Take it to Eastern Asia. Take it, to, take it across the world. Take it everywhere. But in Jesus' earthly ministry, he is not taking the gospel to the nations. Jesus' earthly ministry, at this point in the story, he is redeeming Israel. He has come, in his own words right here, right now, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're like, yeah, but what about us? It's like, he cares about us. He does. This isn't like a callous calculation. It's not a mechanical thing. Like, you're not yet in my kind of business plan of how I'm going to restore the world. But he's saying his priority is for the house of Israel. In fact, when Jesus commissions the 12 and his early followers and he pours out his spirit on them and sends them to make disciples of the nations, when they go, every time they go to a new nation, whether it's somewhere in Greece or somewhere in Italy or somewhere in modern-day Turkey, where do they go first? They always first go to the synagogue. They bring the gospel first to the Hebrew people. And they proclaim it in the synagogue and they give the Hebrew people a chance. And some will believe among the Hebrew people and some will reject. To those who do believe, they become a part of the family of God, the true Israel, the family of God. And through them, that gospel would spread throughout that region. It's the way it has happened. It's the way it's happened throughout history. And the floodgates open through the death and resurrection of Jesus to make its way to all nations. He's not there yet. And so he says, this isn't why I came. Now that feels like harsh and it feels like I said, maybe cold and calculated so let's see if he clears it up here with his next statement. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. He doesn't. So it says this. It says, but she came and she knelt before him. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She doesn't take no for an answer. She comes again. She kneels before him saying, Lord, help me. Help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That doesn't feel good to read out loud. Again, that doesn't sound Jesus-y. Does it? It doesn't sound like it. It feels offensive. Now, now there, there are modern kind of scholars who I think I think uh, trying to make this more palatable and more kind of like um, less offensive to our modern sensibilities try to clean this up a little bit. It, it is true that the Greek word for dogs here is not mangy kind of like dogs that are like out in the streets like going around biting and eating trash. That's not the word. The word that's used here is this diminutive form for little dogs in the sort of modern kind of era and this kind of like first century Greek culture. It's used primarily to speak about kind of domesticated dogs within a house. And so some people will be like, it's puppies, you know, like who didn't want to be a puppy? It's like, I don't want to be a puppy. Um, you know, like, do you want to be compared to somebody's pet? It's like, I, I think we're trying too hard. I think it, it is offensive. It's an offensive line. Jesus says offensive things often. He calls a group of Pharisees, you brood of snakes. You're like a bunch of like offspring of the serpent. That's not nice. You're like, yeah, but those are like a group of pharisaical religious like men. It feels different to hear him say something offensive to this desperate woman. It really does. And, and I get that. I just, I, I'm not, I'm not going to clean it up arbitrarily for us. It's offensive. We have to ask why. Why would it be comfortable saying something offensive? Well, one reason why uh, is because here in the text, this woman is called not just a Gentile woman, she's called a Canaanite woman. Nobody in the first century was using the term Canaanite to describe the people of her region. In fact, when you see the same kind of story in both Mark and in Luke, she's called the Syrophoenician woman because she's a region that in those days were called Syria and Phoenicia. She's from a region that was no longer being called Canaan at all. So why did Matthew choose to refer to her as a Canaanite woman? It means she is a descendant of the Canaanite peoples, but why would he use that word that nobody was using anymore? And I think it's because he's trying to cue us in that she is a part of a story that we're familiar with. If you've read the Bible, you don't even have to make it all the way to Judges in your Bible reading plan. You could, if you just get to Joshua, uh, you're going to be confronted with uh, a lot of stories about the Canaanites. You know, the Canaanites, like in the biblical storyline, like the good guys or the bad guys in the story, 
They're the bad guys in the story. Uh, they're a people group that are created in the image of God. But this particular people group opposed the kingdom of God at every single turn. They were kind of worshiping all these deities. They were sacrificing children. There was corruption in their community. There was a brokenness in the people of Canaan. They were corrupt in their dealings with Israel and with other nations. And the sort of debauchery and the wickedness and the idolatry and the brokenness of their community was something that was so rampant and so destructive for everybody that was a part of that community. And even when given times and opportunities to turn to God, they continued to oppose his kingdom again and again and again. And so in the book of Joshua, you read about the story of God sending his people into this land and the people of Canaan, of the Canaanite land, are continuing to oppose them again and again, have opportunity to repent, have opportunity to turn to him, and some do. Some do turn to the God of Israel, but most try to kill the people of Israel. And so as time goes on, if you have these major players in Israel's story, the the people of Egypt were major opponents that oppressed the people of Israel. The people of Canaan were major opponents. The people of Assyria and Babylon were major opponents. And now the people of Rome. And in this story, for the people of Israel to hear about a Canaanite woman, for the 12 disciples that are there with Jesus, even seeing her come up, a Canaanite come up, it was kind of common terminology for the Hebrew people to refer to the Canaanites as dogs. It wasn't, it, it was an offensive term. It was an offensive term, but the kind of, the way that was used, even the different word that's used here with Jesus, he is not rejecting her, but he's actually affirming something that's real, which is she is part of a people group that have severely rejected him and his kingdom, and his kingdom. But it's offensive. It's a hard word to hear from Jesus, especially for a woman who's desperate for him to heal. And so she says, look at verse 27. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Yes, Lord, fine. Okay, I'll take it. I'm a part of the Canaanite people. I I will own it. We, as a people group, rejected you, rejected your kingdom, opposed Israel again and again and again. I will accept, I will accept this identity as, as somebody who is not a part of this particular people that you've come. But I know something about your mission. Something in her had this awareness that, is, that even if Jesus has come first and foremost for the people of Israel, she knows that he has not come only for the people of Israel. She knows that. Somehow she knows that. And so she owns it and says, okay, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Even the dogs get it. We might not be first. People from my ethnicity might not be, you might be coming first for the people of Israel. You might be coming first for them, but I know that we're a part of the plan. I know that we're not first, but we are eventually getting there. I know that the dogs don't get fed before the kids, but we eventually get fed. We eventually get fed. And what I'm asking, oh Lord, oh Jesus, oh son of David, what I'm asking is that future kingdom reality where you are gonna come and you're gonna bring the gospel through the people of Israel to all the nations and all the peoples of the world will be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. I've heard that, I know that. In that future kingdom reality where all things are new and death is no more and disease is no more and demonic oppression is no more and division is no more, that future reality, can I just get a taste right now? for my daughter. Can you take the future kingdom? I know it's all headed there, but can you just give it to me now for the sake of my daughter? Now. We're eventually going to get the crumbs. We're eventually going to be a part of this mission. I know it, but can I have it now? And she is contending. She won't take no for an answer. She is resilient. She is passionate. She is persevering in her prayer. She says there's nobody else that can do this. And the question I'm asking is where did she learn this? How does she know this? Jesus has retreated from the land of Israel. This is a Canaanite woman in a region outside of Israel. How does she know who he is? Listen to what she calls him again at the very beginning. Oh, Lord, son of David. The phrase son of David is a messianic title. It's a title that was expected that this offspring of David is going to come, who's going to be this royal king, who's going to restore Israel. But the people of Israel have lost track of something that's very clear in the story that that son of David would eventually bring not just healing to Israel, but to all the nations, to all the peoples. And she knew that. This Canaanite woman knew that. Do you know how many of the disciples had that on their mind? Zero. Zero. 
Do you know how many of the first kind of Jewish followers of Jesus had in their mind that this gospel was going to break the boundaries of Israel and spread to all the nations? Almost none of them. The Jewish people had almost entirely lost sight of their identity to be the ones through whom God was spreading his mission to all the nations, all the peoples. But this woman knew. How did she know? I wonder if she knew because she had heard stories about a Canaanite woman. Maybe she heard stories about a Canaanite woman. If you read in Joshua 2, there's a, there's a prostitute named Rahab who when the people of Israel are coming into the land of Canaan, they're coming into this town called Jericho, they send this spies into the town of Jericho and, and the spies go into the town and, and they're being pursued and they make their way into a house and this woman named Rahab invites them into her house and she protects them and she says, I've heard about your God. I've heard about the way your God has delivered you and given you victory and protected you and been with your people again and again. This sense of like the the God of Israel is the one true God I've heard. So I'm going to protect you and I'm asking in my protection of you, which is an incredible act of faith for this prostitute as she's saying, I'm going to protect you because I believe that your God is the one true God. Our people are terrified. If I protect you, will you deliver me? Will you protect me? Will you watch over me? And so there is, even among the Canaanites, there are people who learned that the God of Israel is the real deal. He's the one. And he gave the God of Israel power over the Canaanites in battle after battle after battle. When they trusted him and they followed him, crazy stuff would happen. Crazy stuff would happen. And I wonder if some of their own stories as a people group made their way. Somehow this woman knows the God of Israel is the real deal. And I've heard that an offspring of David's coming. I've heard that he's coming. And when he comes, it's game on for the whole world. It's game on for me. I'm going to follow him. And somehow, one day, he shows up in her region. And she comes to him and pleads with him, deliver me. And she knows, she knows, I understand that you've come for the house of Israel. But I also know that the that the kingdom is going to spread to all the nations. And I'm asking for that future reality to be mine right here, right now. I'm begging for it to be the case. And Jesus hears this word, and he is stunned. What he says to this woman, he says to nobody else. The closest thing he says like this is in chapter 8 that he says to the Roman centurion, also a non-Jew. But he says this, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Does Jesus think here like, oh, you bested me at a metaphor game, so fine? No. He was drawing something out of her. We know his heart. He's been pushing the gospel past like racial boundary markers and cultural boundary markers and socioeconomic boundary markers and kind of through the cleanliness. He's been pushing the kingdom into all of these spaces that the people of Israel are so closed off to. He's been doing it again and again and again in ways that brought a lot of attention and ire from the people of Israel, from the religious leaders. He's doing it. So he's not afraid to challenge. He's not afraid to push. He's not afraid to kind of push the gospel in those places. In this story, he's drawing something out of her. And Matthew wants us to see this Canaanite woman as a model of contending, resilient, persevering faith. That she gets, there's no other future without this one. He is the way. There's no other way that my daughter can be made well. There's no other future besides a future with this Jesus, the son of David, being what she calls him three times in this passage, my Lord, Lord, Lord. He is the one that had come not just for the people of Israel and for her. And though she knew there was a narrative, she was taking her faith in that future and begging Jesus to bring it into the present right here and right now. And that is so often how the kingdom of God moves forward is through resilient, contending, persevering faith of his people. Let's say we're not going to play the game with kind of pursuing our own comfort anymore. We're not going to play the game with just trying to build our own kingdoms anymore. God, we're going to beg for you to move. There's stuff in my heart that I cannot fix, I cannot change, and I can spend all of my days trying to clean myself up and look the part and be the part and do what I'm supposed to be and be the version of me that I think I'm supposed to be and I can try harder and do more. And there are things to try and there are things to do. But what does it look like to beg God, will you change my heart? Will you change my heart? I need you. I'm desperate for you to bring change into my heart. As you think about your family, 
God, I'm desperate for you to move in my kids. I'm desperate for you to move in my son's life and in my daughter's life and my grown kids and in my family and in my grandchildren. I'm, I'm desperate for you to move. I don't just want to have kids that get a good job and make their way and build a nice life for themselves. I want them to know you and to walk with you and to enjoy you. And I, and I can't make that happen. And so I'm desperate for you to move. I'm desperate for you to move in Ukraine and among the people of Russia and among the people of Ukraine to take the good news of the kingdom in this news that through the love of Jesus, he's bringing forgiveness and transformation to the point where weapons can be thrown into kind of these molding tanks and can be used for farming and for peace and for harmony. These are the prophecies that God is building a kingdom where war is no more, marital strife is no more, disease is no more, death is no more, division is no more, injustice is no more, poverty is no more. This is the future. This is the future where it's all headed. And we spend all of our time doing the same thing Adam and Eve did. We're trying to get pieces of that future in our own ingenuity. And there are times where we're supposed to use our agency as people full of the Spirit to pursue those things. But we're also supposed to be a people that get down on our knees and say, God, that's the future kingdom. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth right here, right now as it is in heaven. Take that future where death Disease, division, brokenness, sin, hatred, strife, greed, injustice, covetousness, racism, misogyny. Take that future where that is all gone and bring it now. And we're going to beg you and we're going to beg you and we're going to pray. We're going to pray that you would transform human hearts to the preaching of your gospel. We're going to pray that you would bring transformation into my life and change these things within me that I cannot fix on my own. And we're going to beg you to move. And we're going to keep on begging. We're going to keep on begging. And you might say, well, I haven't come again and made all things new yet. And we're going to say, but can you give us a taste now? Every time we pray for physical healing for somebody, that's what we're praying for. We're praying that there is a day when death is no more, disease is no more, sickness is no more. We know that that's coming. We know that part of the mission of Jesus is to die for human sin and the root cause of all brokenness and to rise again from the dead, that resurrection power to bring a future where all things are new, the dead are made well and alive and thriving and disease is no more. That's coming. We're asking for a little bit of a taste of it right here, right now. Show us your power, show us your love, show us your redeeming grace. We're asking for it now. We know that there's a day when injustice is no more and war is no more. God, do it in Ukraine right now. Do it in Ukraine right now. End it. Like some ceasefire where all of a sudden Putin's just like, we're done. Now, do it now. Do it now, drop the weapons. Forgive each other, like reconcile, learn, listen. Like you can, God, do it now. Do it now. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done right here, right now on earth, just as it is in the heavenly realm. Beg him. Beg him. And persevere and ask again and ask again and ask again and ask again because it seems in this passage that one of the reasons why God sometimes is not moving or one of the things he's looking for to move his hand is persistent, persevering, resilient, contending faith from his people. When this woman first asks Jesus, he ignores her, not because he doesn't care. We know that he cares. He's gentle and lowly. He heals again and again and again. He's full of compassion and steadfast love. It's who he is. He's drawing something out of her. He ignores her. She keeps pleading. He says, this is not where I'm at in the mission. She keeps pleading. And she shows this unrelenting faith in him. Like this person who just knocks on the door again and again and again. And then he says, your faith is stunning. This is exemplary faith. My fear for us, my fear for me personally, is that we are so comfortable, many of us, that we're not really desperate for him to move. We're so comfortable. Do, are we desperate for him to redeem and heal and restore or are we mostly good? Yeah, there's some things I want to be better and there's some things I want to change and then I get in those crisis moments and then I'm like, no, God, do it now, do it now. But what does it look like to be people that are just have this awareness of the future that God is building and a longing for it that we're not getting 
distracted by and turned aside by these false kingdoms where we are building treasures and building a kingdom without the king and kind of storing up treasures for our, ourselves on earth of experiences and relationships and all these things that ultimately will fade and be challenged and decay instead of saying we're going to seek first God's kingdom. We're going to beg for God to move. We're going to seek his righteousness. So we get comfortable. We get comfortable. And the things we're desperate for are often just the next stage of comfort that we want or a feeling that our comfort is being threatened in some way. And so we're desperate at times, but we're not desperate often for the kingdom. I've been so convicted by this passage. I I want to be a, a person who's saying, God, I don't want to be turned aside by the American kind of vision of the good life, of building comfort, experiences, pleasure, financial security, healthy retirement, healthy kids, decent house in a decent city, uh, and then like go to heaven when I die. That's not the vision. It's not the vision. It's not the kingdom. But I think we settle into that. And I don't think it's what God has for us. What would it be, look like for him to awaken within us a hunger, a desperation, a desire? God, revive our hearts again. Fill each heart with thy love. Would each and every soul be rekindled with fire from above? A, a passion for Christ and for his kingdom, a passion to see our own lives increasingly conform to the image of Jesus, to see the lives of our neighbors reconciled to God, that they would know him and know his love and his forgiveness and his grace and his power, to see his gospel move into our families and among our children, into the next generation, into the next city, into the next nation, and the next, what's next? God, do it. Do it. And let's knock on the door and contend and ask and contend and ask. And what might God do through that kind of persevering, resilient faith. I think he's looking for that. I think he's looking for that. I think he's looking around for who's hungry? Who's desperate for my kingdom? Who's, who's kind of not settling into the status quo of some version of the American dream of this kingdom without the king? Who's hungry for me? What might he do if, if we were a people who are hungry? If you're like me, there are times where I've been hungry. And there are times where that hunger has subsided. There are times where I've felt passionate to walk with him and to spend my time with him and to to be bold with the gospel and to grow and to pursue his kingdom with my life and even my vocation and whatever it might be for you. So you think about how do I pursue his kingdom at work and how do I pursue his kingdom in my family or among my roommates or in my neighborhood or maybe God's calling me to be a part of this mission to the nations. What might it be? And I'm ready and I want to be a part of what you're doing in the world because I'm hungry for that future and I'm asking you to move and to, to lead and I'm ready to surrender anything. There might have been a day But for many of us, that that passion subsides and we settle in. There's some challenges, there's some difficulties, or there's a shiny new thing, and there's an opportunity that feels like that'll make me feel good, or people will be excited about that, and we just get get off course a little bit. This is a chance to get, get back on course, to look at the faith of this Canaanite woman, this persevering faith, and say, God, I want to see your kingdom come. So my question for you is, where are you desperate for God to move? Where are you desperate for God to move? Are you? Are you hungry? What would it look like to be a people who plead for him to move in power among us? Well, what I love about this story is this, this woman experiences healing. It says in the, in the version of Mark that her daughter who was at her house was healed in that moment in her home. But what's happening here is not just happening for this Canaanite woman and for her daughter. The next passages are are very familiar to us. We've heard passages like these of Jesus bringing healing and transformation to the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and and all these people with diseases and different ailments. And we've heard a story recently of Jesus feeding 5,000. Is Matthew trying to like fill in space? Does he have like a word quota here? And it's like, why is he telling the same thing? These words have almost been verbatim in previous parts. In fact, chapter 14, there's a feeding of 5,000. So it's just a mistake. No, it's not, it's not a mistake. What's powerful about this passage is it says in verse 29, Jesus went on from there and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. In Mark chapter 7 and 8, where the parallel passage is presented in the Gospel of Mark, it says that he went to the east side of the Sea of Galilee to a region called the Decapolis, which was a Gentile region. And the healings that he's doing here among this 
people group, the lame that are being healed, the crippled and the blind and the deaf and the mute that are being healed, it's in a Gentile territory. The feeding of the 4,000 that's happening here is in Gentile territory. That Jesus, who had just said, I came mostly, I came for the lost sheep. He said, only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This Canaanite woman pleaded with him. I know it's going to the nations. Bring it now. And somehow her faith was not just bringing healing into her life, but through her, a door was opening up to the Gentiles. And Jesus just starts healing Gentiles, healing the nations, all who would come to him. And then holding together a feast where just like he had met the people of Israel and fed 5,000 people. And how many baskets were left over in the feeding of 5,000? 12 baskets were left over in the feeding of 5,000. Those 12 baskets in Hebrew numerology are talking about the fullness of the people of Israel. How many baskets are left over in this story? Seven. In Hebrew numerology, this is the fullness of the world. He's, He's bringing his satisfying, redeeming love to the world. And this faith of this particular woman on this particular day moved his hand and opened up a doorway for the power of Jesus to be at work among all of these people. And I think, what would it look like to be people that are saying, God, I want you to move in my family, but I also just want to be a person that's just hungry for you to move. And I think God is looking for that kind of faith. He's looking for that kind of faith. I think he loves to lean into that. And there are times where as we pray, as we ask, and and we feel he's not answering, he's not answering, that one of the things it's supposed to do is not dissuade us, but cultivate in us a deeper hunger, a deeper commitment, a deeper passion. Oh God, we really are desperate for you to move. I think some of you here are ready for that kind of passion and commitment. Uh, There are some here uh, that I imagine you're still pretty committed to some version of life that's building your own kingdom without the king. And I'm going to be really direct. I get it. I struggle with the same thing. It is not the way to life. It's not the way. Using all your energy and all your resources to build a great little version of life here and now, build your own Garden of Eden, build your own kingdom without the God, without the king is not the way to life. In fact, in the very beginning of the story, it is the way to death. But there is a way to life, and it's to come to Jesus, crying out for him to move with his power, his grace, his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, and may he pour out his spirit on us to make us a people that are contending for him to move in our hearts, in our family, in our church, in our city, and around the world. Would you join me as we pray that he would do that among us? Um, Jesus, we right now are asking for you to move right now in our hearts. We want to be a people that are desperate for you to move among us, to bring grace and healing and love and a passion for Christ and the kingdom right here, right now in Park Church, where we are tempted to turn away to competing visions for life, where we are tempted to buy into the deceptive ideas of the enemy and to turn away from your design your kingdom, your values, your glory, to build our own thing, would you lead us to repentance, not condemning, but would your mercy, your love, your kindness lead us to repentance? Where people have drifted from a passion for you and have settled into complacency, God, would you awaken our soul again and sing, would you revive us again? Revive us again. Remind us that your power The power of your name, the power of your kingdom is the power through which you will transform the world and make us hungry for Christ and the kingdom. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Heart Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.